Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. It's Dr. Casey Patrick again, joining you guys today to talk about hyperkalemia in the pre-hospital setting, both how we recognize it and how we treat it. Manning the board for us today, as always, Andy Adams. Thank you, Andy. And joining me in my discussion today is going to be our clinical director, Jordan Anderson. Hi, everybody. Let's get right to it here. Why does, why does potassium matter? Why do we care? And I think, you know, we, we know this answer in bits and pieces, but just to try to sum it up a little bit, you know, potassium is vital for cardiac conduction. Higher potassium equals increased cardiac myocyte or cardiac cell excitability. So when our potassium creaks up from that normal value of 3.5 or 4 to 7.5 or 8, prone to arrhythmia. Same thing when we have abnormally low potassium. Again, extremely low potassiums can also lead to arrhythmia. One thing to remember when we're talking about potassium in our body, what we're really concerned about and when it causes arrhythmia is when we have elevated extracellular potassium. So that's when we get the myocyte excitability, that's when we get our arrhythmias. So total body potassium can be normal or even low, but if it's shifted extracellularly for acid-base reasons or other problems, then we can still have the results, the clinical results that we don't want from hyperkalemia. But remember, that's extracellular hyperkalemia that we're worried about. So how do we recognize these folks, Jordan? Well, unfortunately, hyperkalemia is going to present like a lot of things, and it's going to have just vague symptoms. General weakness, muscle cramping, nausea, vomiting, bradycardia, maybe some wide complex rhythms. The, the trick with hyperkalemia to recognize is to pair that with the history, and that's going to be dialysis, 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 or in-stage renal disease. A history of dialysis with those symptoms uh, will get you thinking on the, the hyperkalemia path. DKA and excited delirium uh, or rhabdomyolysis, those, those other historical factors might play a part into thinking hyperkalemia. You know, on the EKG, looking for a wide complex rhythm uh, would be your first indication really to really consider hyperkalemia or those peak T waves. Why don't you go ahead and talk to us about the specific EKG changes that we'd be looking for? So again, just kind of recap what Jordan just said. I, w- I would agree with all those points. I mean, these patients can present in a very vague fashion. You know, nausea and vomiting, muscle cramping, general weakness. I mean, that encompasses a large portion of our patients as is. Well, the important point Jordan made is we have to pair those folks with the high-risk patients because we're not going to, in a pre-hospital setting, we're not going to take a patient with no medical history and diagnose hyperkalemia very often. But if you get a nausea, vomiting, vague complaint patient that is a hemodialysis patient that missed his last two runs, and that's when our when our alarm bells need to start going off. And our test of choice here at MCHD for looking for hyperkalemia is going to be our EKG. Now, for services out there, folks out there that have iStat capability, you guys have at it. You'll get the potassium back pretty darn quickly. Here, we don't, but we do have a pretty good stand-in for that iStat potassium. And again, that's the EKG. So the easiest way to think about this, and if you guys have heard me talk before, I like to try to keep things simple. And I was taught hyperkalemic EKG changes by thinking of a fisherman hooking the T-wave. So the T-wave's hooked, you start to reel it in, your T-wave peaks, your QRS widens, the P-wave flattens, then you get that classic sine wave, sinusoidal wave that you see, hit, you know, pictures worth a thousand words for you guys out there listening, hit Google Images, hyperkalemia, EKG, and you'll see that sine wave and it kind of burn in your brain, that was a hard one to forget. But remember that your potassium level and your level of EKG changes, they don't always correlate 
Exactly. Especially in end-stage renal disease patients, they can have pretty normal-looking EKGs at really high potassium rates. So you can't take peak T's, QRS, widening, flattened P's, and sine wave and assign a value to each of those. You know, it's, it's going to vary for, from patient to patient, but it's a pretty good, you know, pretty good rough test for us to look at because patients that tend to crash from hyperkalemia, they're going to have those dangerous EKG changes. And just of note, while we're on the subject of potassium and EKGs, I'd be remiss if I didn't hit the other end, and that's going to be hypokalemia. And in those patients, you're going to classically see what are called U waves. And if you know the alphabet, I struggle with it. I'm from Kentucky. But after the T comes the U wave. And so a positive deflection past the T wave is a U wave. That's what you're going to see when the potassium drops down in that really low range, less than two and a half or so. Talked a little bit about potassium, why it matters, cardiac conduction. There's going to be vague symptoms in high-risk patients, and we're going to watch our EKG, make sure that we're looking for those classic hyperkalemia changes. Also, I think the other one Jordan mentioned that I didn't hit on exactly is going to be bradycardia as well. You know, peri-arrest patients that are bradycardic, we need to, you know, in high risk, we need to consider hyperkalemia and those folks too. Jordan, I'll talk to the listeners out there a little bit about why why are we addressing this as a service? What what led MCHD down this road to, to kind of pick out hyperkalemia and, and address it specifically? Yeah, we had several uh, multi-peri arrest cases and a couple potentially hyperkalemia cardiac arrest cases, and our crews treated it very well. Um, talking to the crew, case reviews following, we realized they were kind of following off protocol. We didn't have written guidelines on how to treat hyperkalemia. And so we wanted to provide that to our crews or maybe to the crews that weren't aware on how to treat hyperkalemia. We had all the tools in our toolbox. We had the calcium, we have the albuterol, we have the sodium bicarbonate, but we didn't have it on the same page on, on how to treat hyperkalemia. So that's really where it sparked from. So Jordan mentioned our, our three pre-hospital hyperkalemia treatment options. And our number one is calcium. Calcium's our go-to. It works very quickly to stabilize the myocytes. And that's really our goal, right, is to prevent arrhythmia. Um, we're going to reserve it for our unstable hyperkalemia patients with EKG changes. And we'll talk about our protocol specifically here in just a second. You think somebody's sick, we think they're peri-arrest, they got hyperkalemia, calcium is going to be our go-to. Uh, number two is going to be albuterol. Albuterol takes advantage of the shift that we talked about earlier, where that potassium intracellularly is not toxic in the way that extracellular potassium is. So we want, if we can just move it from the extracellular space intracellularly, we bias time until we can empty that potassium. And again, that's going to be dialysis. We're not going to do that in the pre-hospital setting, but it buys us time to get to the hospital, get to the emergency room, and get that, get that arranged and set up. So calcium, albuterol, calcium is going to stabilize the membrane. Albuterol is going to shift the potassium intracellularly. Third, we use sodium bicarb in our protocol. Uh, looking at this evidence, if anybody listening out there is going to go dig around on this. The evidence for bicarb really is is uh, murky at best. It's likely more delayed than we all think and have been taught. It probably acts by some combination of both intracellular shift and increased excretion of potassium, probably not getting the benefit from bicarb that we do albuterol and surely not from calcium. But that's that's our, our three med approach here at MCHD. Jordan, talk to the talk to our listeners out there a little bit about our protocol specifics and, and how we put that together. So this protocol is pretty unique in the way that it, it tackles the problem with multi-prongs, right? So the calcium to stabilize the cardiac membrane, albuterol to shift potassium, and the, the bicarb to hopefully increase excretion. So I think that's a neat uh, part that we get to play in the pre-hospital environment, um, maybe a bigger role than we normally do um, 
for us to recognize, but for us to recognize the, the hyperkalemia, we want you to have the clinical concern and the EKG changes. So we want you to have the history, most likely dialysis, along with the EKG changes, most likely peak T-wave, widening QRS, before you treat the uh, hyperkalemia with calcium, albuterol, and bicarbonate. Um, so for us, that's one gram of, of calcium chloride today. Uh, it could be a gram of calcium gluconate if if that day were to come um, due to shortages. Albuterol, we wrote 15 milligrams, but really it's it's as much albuterol as you can get on board up to say 20 milligrams or so uh, to get to the hospital. That takes a while to take effect. And so as much albuterol as we have time for is probably reasonable. And then the 50 mil equivalents of sodium bicarb is the treatment we have today. So uh, yeah, I think the albuterol issue I mean, for us in Montgomery County is not that complicated because our transport times are not terribly long. I think if you were in a rural area where you had 60, 90 minute transports, you would probably have to put a cap on that. Patient would get pretty darn jittery if you ran them on continuous that long. But for for us, when we're looking at 20, 30 minutes max, um, I think it makes most sense just to, you know, these are sick patients, right? So I think it makes more sense to just think about continuous albuterol until they get to the hospital. And again, I think, you know, we're using calcium chloride now. I think Jordan's point about shortages with the jug shortage, it seems like worsens every day. Something something new is short. Calcium chloride, calcium gluconate, both are going to have the same action that we're looking for. Um, one one note when we talk about the EKG changes that we have to have paired with the high-risk patient, you know, we think about the peak T-wave, widened QRS, flat P, sine wave group, and that's kind of the classic hyperkalemia progression. But patients with significant unstable bradycardia also fall in that fall in that group as well. So if a patient is a renal renal failure patient or a DKA patient and their heart rate's in the 30s and it looks, you know, bizarre and ugly, I think those patients are fine to plug into this protocol. I think what we really want to avoid is the dialysis patient that missed dialysis and feels weak and the EKGs is a normal sinus of 70 with normal T waves and normal QRS. That's that's patients not going to fall into this treatment protocol. They may still be hyperkalemic and they still may need urgent dialysis at the hospital, but they're not going to get pre-hospital hyperkalemia treatment. And this, I think the second point on the EKG note, really want to drive home is, is beware of wide complex patterns with rates of less than 120. They may look a lot like ventricular tachycardia, and you may go down that antiarrhythmic path. But if somebody has a wide complex rate at 110 and you give that patient amiodarone, it can be, it can be deadly. So when you see wide complex rates less than 120, think about hyperkalemia, think about overdose, think about TCA overdose in those patients. Because again, amiodarone is going to be trouble in those patients because amiodarone has many effects, but it affects potassium channels. So not a drug that we want to give in a patient that has potassium of eight. So just, you know, consider the risk factor the patient has. Are they a dialysis patient? Are they a DKA patient? Are they a potential overdose patient? Look at that rate. And if it's less than 120, I think we need to push ourselves down the hyperkalemia pathway as opposed to the VT pathway. So let's hit a few loose ends and wrap up. If you think about what the patient may get in the emergency department, or you look up, you know, emergent hyperkalemia treatment and, and read about that, you, you may see insulin mentioned. Um, you know, we don't carry insulin here on our trucks at MCHD. It acts as an, a shifting agent similar to albuterol. So you give insulin and it's going to push potassium intracellularly. And if you guys carry it out there, it's definitely an option. We don't. Oftentimes when patients get to the emergency department, they get that insulin. But just in case you're, in case you're asking that to yourself, um, how, what else do patients get in well, the hospital? Well, impaired with that insulin, you'll see those patients on dextrose to counteract the insulin. So dextrose has no ability to 
decreased potassium, but you'll often see these hyperkalemia patients on dextrose. Yeah, and one of the issues with with that, that, you know, we run into in the emergency department just, you know, for for education's sake, is oftentimes patients need repeat dosing of dextrose because the insulin half-life is longer than the dextrose half-life. And you got to think, these patients aren't necessarily diabetic. Now, if a patient has a sugar of 520 and they're a DKA patient, then yeah, they don't have to necessarily get as much dextrose. So we don't have to be as worried about that. But if it's an end-stage renal disease patient without di- diabetes and their blood sugar is 155, then yes, they're going to get insulin. Just like Jordan said, they're going to get dextrose to, to pair with that. And what you need to be worried about in the emergency department is 60, 90 minutes later, two hours later, when that dextrose is worn off and the insulin is still active, oftentimes they need redose. So you'll go in and find them sweaty and altered with a sugar of 30. So again, Again, not something that we uh, carry on the trucks here, but uh, just for educational purposes. You know, another another drug that you'll see on the hyperkalemia treatment list very often is KXLate. Um, I don't want to make enemy, enemies out there, but I really didn't address KXLate because it doesn't work really at much of anything besides increasing the risk of bowel necrosis. Um, it's always requested. It's still given in the hospital every day, but the literature supporting its use is pretty hilarious. If you want to do a deep dive on that, there's some pretty terrible studies from the 60s that we base all of our Kexlate use on. And anything that's more recent than the ancient past shows no real benefit. And the patients that get Kexlate all tend to get necrosis. So, or at least at a higher rate than those that don't. So uh, that's enough said on that one. Um, and again, our end goal from a pre-hospital standpoint is buying time for dialysis. Um, what are your thoughts on digoxin? Oftentimes when you hear about giving calcium, there's always a, a warning or concern about digoxin patients. Is that real? Well, we when we wrote the protocol, I think that was probably the one concern that I had in the back of my mind based on dogma and what we were taught in the text. And I'm not 100. This was you know 10 or 15 years ago. And the concern being that if a patient is on digoxin and it's potentially digitoxic, Calcium administration can cause what was, what is called stone heart, um, kind of like the literature on Kexalate. Again, no, you guys don't want to spend hours out there pouring through this stuff. Neither do I, really. But just a cursory look at the data on where this idea of stone heart came from. Um, it's likely theoretical. It comes from five case reports in the 30s and the 50s. So we're talking, you know, 70, 80 years ago. To boil it down and not belabor it. The concept of stone heart is probably 100% theoretical and probably false. So again, I think we need to pick the right patients. We've got to pick the unstable patients, the patients that are peri-arrest, that have EKG changes and have the the high risk factors. You know, this is low-hanging fruit that we're after here. We're not after new onset renal failure. We may see those, but that's pretty tough. But if we pick up a patient from DaVita or from their house and they've missed dialysis should set off some alarms for us. And we should look at that EKG a little closer, you know, wrapping it up. I think it's been a, been a good, good sort of overview of why we care and how we're treating it now and why we approached our treatment a little bit differently just to kind of hit the high points. Too much potassium stops the heart. So it's a bad thing. Want to avoid that. Again, I think the, the goal for our, for our paramedics at MCHT is to start thinking along the lines of differential diagnosis and look at these patients, their risk factors, and anticipate hyperkalemia before we even hook up the 12 lead. You got a dialysis patient, you got a DKA patient, a potential rhabdo patient, like you mentioned earlier, Jordan. We should be looking for hyperkalemia changes when we EKG these folks, right? Um, yeah, we're looking for STEMI and we always look for STEMI, but I think sometimes we look at STEMI to a fault and our EKG gla- glasses can change. We talked on an earlier podcast about syncope. In syncopal patients, we're not classically looking for STEMI in those folks. In hyperkalemia patients, it's the same thing. We want to look for those hyperkalemia changes, you know, when we think that that risk is high. Um, think about think about the fisherman hooking the T wave and reeling it in. Peak T, widen QRS, flatten P, and then the sine wave. 
Our treatment's going to be three-pronged, calcium, albuterol, and bicarb. We want to shift the potassium intracellularly. We want to increase excretion of potassium. We want to stabilize those cardiac cells because anytime that extracellular K goes up, they can get really sensitive. Uh, beware of slower wide rhythms. Again, oftentimes can get confused with, with VT. If it's less than 120, think calcium, not amiodarone. And again, the end goal of all of this, you know, none of, none of these treatments are really going to lower our total body potassium. They're all taking advantage of stabilization and shifting and buying us time to get to the hospital and get the patient hooked up for hemodialysis. So that about wraps it up for today. Thank you guys again for joining us. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Jordan. And we'll talk to you all soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, could be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.